So let me just move on. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks for God. Uh, we always, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act, of, and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are looking at uh, 2 Thessalonians, but if you might remember earlier in the year in April and May, we preached a series of sermons on 1 Thessalonians. In between the four sermons on 2 Thessalonians, we will have our first ever kindergarten Sunday on the 1st of November. Uh, we're going to ask uh, a couple of classes from our kindergarten to uh, perform again some of the items that they trained so very hard for for their, um, their graduation uh, concert. And of course, we invite their families, the caregivers, all uh, to come. And our own Joanne will speak as a youth pastor that day, first service and second service, as well as a mother of uh, a kindergarten kid, uh, Gemma. So please make an effort to, to welcome um, our kindy parents and their caregivers on the 1st of, of, of November. But for now, we look at Second Thessalonians. Um, we worked our way through First, First Thessalonians earlier in the year, where the theme really was the Apostle Paul writing the first letter to the Thessalonians to comfort them, to comfort them in their severe suffering. It is recorded. So while First Thessalonians might be uh, might have the theme of comfort, Second Thessalonians, which was written anything from six to twelve months later has a theme of correction. To correct some of the wrong ideas that, that the Thessalonians had um, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 about, um, about persecution. In chapter 2, about the prophecy concerning Christ's return. And in chapter 3, about certain practices uh, that uh, needed to be corrected. 
like in the first letter to the Thessalonians, um, the second Thessalonians also has a very heavy emphasis on what is called eschatology, the doctrine of the end times or the doctrine of the last days. Uh, There are 47 verses in second Thessalonians, 18 verses or 38% refers to the end times. And Talking about the end times, um, some of you, I know, but I'm not really sure how many, might have come across these three uh, best-selling books. Anybody knows about these three? Harbinger, Shemitah? Not a single? Okay, several single ones. Um, So the first one is Harbinger, The Harbinger, by Jonathan Kahn. Jonathan Kahn Kahn, uh, is a Messianic Jew. And this was published in 2012. Then came his second book published in 2014, The Mystery of the Shemitah. And then another book called The Four Blood Moons, which you might have heard of this recent months, by a guy called John Hagee, and that was published in 2013. And and these books and others like it uh, might have, I don't know for those who who read it, might have scared the living daylights out of you, um, or at least it would have caused... Uh, some anxiety or, or maybe some disquiet, um, not least about your investments in the stock market. Or the first one. The first one, The Harbinger, is a fictional story, written as fiction, but it also says, and I quote, you can read it there, it tells of an ancient mystery that holds the secret of America's future. And the premise of the book is that God was giving a warning to America one of which was the 9-11 attack on the Twin Towers in 2001. And it linked that to ancient Israel being destroyed in the 8th century by the Assyrians. And with some creative interpretation of the Old Testament, Khan came up with nine signs, nine harbingers or warnings of the destruction of America. And he calls America the so-called, he calls America the New Israel. America is a new Israel. Uh, to me, there's a very great leap in logic and in a doctrine to, to, to say that America is a new Israel. One harbinger in particular catches everyone's attention. The stock market. The stock market. And he noted that the American stock market crashed in 2001. Seven years later, in 2008, and what do you think? seven years later, 2015. And he noted that the crash happened on that same day of the Jewish calendar in 2001 and 2008. And that day is the day of the Shemitah. And so he wrote the second book based on one of the nine harbingers. The second book, The Mystery of the Shemitah, which he reviewed. The author's theory is that God visited warnings and judgment against America according to a seven-year cycle going back many centuries. Um, And something bad always happened on the last day of the Sabbath year, which is the Shemitah. Okay, Sabbath, seven years, and then the last day of that seven year is the Shemitah, starting all the way from Babylonian captivity in 500-something BC. And along the way from Israel, somehow it transits into America, the new Israel, 
into the stock market crashes of 1929, the Great Depression, to 2001, to 2008, to 2001's felling of the Twin Towers. So the next sabbatical year from 2008 is... 2014, uh, 2014 to 2015. The sabbatical year is 25th of uh, September 2014 to the 13th of September 2015, about a month ago. So the 13th of September was the day to watch, and many Christians watched it. If you know how to make money, you could have made a lot of money from it if the stock market had crashed, if you know how to short stocks, that is. But fortunately or unfortunately, nothing happened. Nothing big happened, at least. Nothing significant. And then the third book, The Four Blood Moons. Okay, this is based on uh, Joel, the, the, the Old Testament prophet Joel, chapter 2, verse 31. It says, The sun will be, will, will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great day, great and dreadful day of the Lord. And... It is a lunar eclipse. A, a lunar eclipse will make the moon reddish. Okay, it's, it's got something to do with physics. Uh, maybe you can ask Jonathan Leong or somebody about the refraction of light and all that. The premise of this book, The Four Blood Moons, is that momentous big events are linked to the phenomenon of what is called a tetrad. Huh? This T-E-T-R-A-D. And the definition of the tetrad is four successive total lunar eclipses with no partial lunar eclipses in between, each of which is separated from the other by six months. I hope you got that. It was, took me a long time to figure it out. Okay? But anyway, that's the definition of a tetrad. And from the year 81 to the year 20, 2100, okay, several years from now, 21 centuries, there have been 62 tetrads. And which are the tetrads that fall on the Passover? which we had a sermon about, and the Feast of Tabernacles. There are eight, which fell, uh, eight of the um, 62 tetrads, the four lunar eclipses, fell in the last 21 centuries, and these are the years. And something big is supposed always to happen. Okay, the, the one that I read from the book would be the Spanish Inquisition, where the Jews were chased out of uh, Spain, they were persecuted, then the War of Independence, uh, where they got into a war straight after Israel was, um, became a nation. The Six-Day War actually turned out to be very good for Israel. They won a lot of uh, territory. And then 2014 to 2015. Something is about to change. In the last chapter of this book, The Four Moons, it says the final, it says the final, okay? That's the last one because it'll be the end of the world. Four blood moons are signaling that something big is coming. Something that will change the world forever. Okay, nothing happened except the haze. <laughs> so nothing happened in this tetrad, in this so-called last tetrad this year. The next one, 17 years from now, 2032 to 2033. And I'm very sure that uh, some writer will be publishing books about that close, uh, close to uh, that, that year. Um, what you should know about the blood moons, actually we've got to look at, at the full uh, verse. There are so many verses about um, blood moons 
uh, I, I list three here. And it almost always has earthquake, uh, darkness. The sun will be darkened, the moon will turn red, or the moon will be darkened, and the stars will fall out of the sky. Okay, it's like that. But why is it only the four blood moons become so, so famous when nobody talks about uh, uh, solar eclipses? And solar eclipses, at least physically, unless some miracle happens, uh, cannot coincide with a lunar eclipse, right? Physically, it cannot happen. But that's what the Bible says, that the sun will be darkened, the moon will turn red or be darkened, and there'll be no stars. And, and it's like something happens in the atmosphere that blocks out the sky. Like what? Like haze, I think. <laughs> anyway, um, so all these books that, that are, are very popular in the last couple of years have a, has a very America-centric view uh, of the world. Okay? Um, read it by all means, but realize that it's, it's very American-centric uh, uh, and we've got to take these things with uh, some discernment. Oh, and did you know that four days ago, on the 7th of October, the world was supposed to have ended? Anybody read about that? Um, if this so-called online fellowship called the E-Bible Fellowship in America, if they were right, then 7th October would have been the last day of the world. How did they get that date? They got that date by adding 1,600 days from the 21st of May, 2011, when one guy called Harold Camping said that the world will end. So it was a failed prediction that was based on another failed prediction. But there is redeeming grace because in March of 2012, one year after Harold Camping failed in his prediction of the end of the world, he said this. He said that his attempt to predict a date was sinful and that his critics had been right in emphasizing the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. It says, no one knows about that day or hour. And then he added that he was now searching the Bible even more fervently, not to find the dates, but to be more faithful in his understanding of the Bible. And I think he got it right uh, in the end. So, in the midst of eschatology, the doctrine of the end times and all these books and that are written about it and all the many predictions about the end of the world, how do we pray? How do we pray? And, and, may, and, and the title of my sermon is uh, Let This Be Our Prayer. Okay. Uh, maybe now we just listen to this. It's such a great song. And then we end the sermon. Okay. It's such a great song. should we be praying in October of 2015? After the many failed predictions of the end of the world, should we become cynical? And should we be praying like Celine Dion, guide us with your grace to a place where we'll be safe? Where we'll be safe from predictions of the world ending? How do we pray? Uh, let me introduce my friend to you. His name is Donald Cox. He's 87 years old. And he's a swinging bachelor. Get it? No, no, no. He's, he's actually a swinging widower because his wife died some 10 years ago. And Don Cox prays for me every Monday. I got to know him in 1977, before some of you were born. 
And yeah, he's been faithfully praying for me ever since 1980 when I, I left uh, England after studies. And in his letters to me, yes, he still writes letters. Now he's got email. He hasn't got Facebook yet. Um, he often prays according to Second Thessalonians. And he prays according to the three made a lot. You know, there are three made a lot be, uh, uh, in, in Second Thessalonians. Chapter 2, verse 16. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. La, da, da, da. Second Thessalonians, Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. And chap, uh, chapter 3, verse 16. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times. So I think Second Thess- Thessalonians really is about, is about prayer. There are three prayers here, and there is another prayer in chapter 1. And so there are four model prayers by the Apostle Paul in Second Thessalonians. So let's take a, a closer look at the one in chapter 1, which uh, has been assigned to me by myself. Okay, verse 11. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of His calling, and that by His power He may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Firstly, worthy of His calling. There are many verses in the Bible that talks about being worthy of God, worthy of Christ, worthy of the gospel. Now, it doesn't mean that we earn our worth in God's eyes. We know that it's, it's a gospel of, of grace or that, or that we deserve something, that we are worthy of something from God. It's just the opposite. It means that God deserves having His children live a life worthy of Him, worthy of the grace of God, worthy of the love of God that was expressed supremely on the cross. Now, how do we be, be worthy? We need to be worthy of repentance, right? You remember John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And so we pray. Let this be our prayer. Our prayer is that we might be worthy. We might be worthy to bear fruits of repentance, worthy of a God who loved us and who gave Himself for us on the cross. The second part of verse 11 talks about two aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. Talks about goodness and talks about faithfulness. But what is this in the context of? It is in the context of, um, of um, persecution and affliction. If you look at verse 4, chapter 1, verse 4, it says, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So in the midst of persecutions and affliction, we bear fruit that is worthy of repentance, that is worthy of a God who loved us. Now, the Greek word for persecution, diokmos, occurs nine times in the New Testament. You can, some would... um, would interpret persecutions as something external, right? Somebody persecutes you for your faith, right? They chop off your head, they, they feed you to the lions. It's persecution, it's external. The word, the Greek word for, for trials or afflictions, uh, philipsis, 
occurs uh, more times, 43 times in the New Testament, and some you can interpret it as something internal, whether it is um, a dreaded disease or, or hurt emotions um, or unfairness. It's something uh, internal. And actually the word means pressing together, stress. Stress, pressing together, like you're squeezed uh, together, stress or distress. And um, Jesus used that same Greek word, John chapter 16, verse 33, where he says, I told you these things, that you in me you may have peace. In this world you will have philipsis. In this world you will have trouble, distress, stress, afflictions, trials. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So in some sense, God counts us worthy of suffering for him, whether externally through persecution or internally through trouble or afflictions. And in the midst of persecutions and afflictions, we exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. And in the context of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, two aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, goodness and faithfulness. So let's look at the first one. Verse 11 says, We constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of His calling and that by His power He may fulfill every good purpose of yours. In the NIV, in other versions, it is resolve for good, good pleasure of His goodness, desire for goodness. The Greek word there is agathosune, from which the name uh, Agatha, Agatha Christie, the writer, comes from goodness. The same word, Greek word, is used in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, that ninefold fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, goodness. So in the midst of persecutions and afflictions, God may count you worthy of His calling and that it might be exhibited in goodness. Um, The English Standard Version calls it resolve for good. It's not so much our human resolve to do good, but it is a resolve that proceeds from the goodness of God. Uh, that's, that's virtue, that's holiness that is in action. This word goodness is an active word that is for the benefit of others. In the latest issue of uh, Impact Magazine, which uh, some of you would, would have, you know Dr. Tan Lai Yong, some of us know him, right? Dr. Tan Lai Yong, who I think spent 13 or 14 years as a missionary in China, he's now back. And he writes always the last page, the last column he writes. And he recounts his experience of treating uh, an old man in a poor area of uh, China. The man was 80 years old. This man lives alone. His children does not visit him. His wife has the dementia and lives in an institution far away. Now, he had terminal uh, lung problems, some lung infection or, or, or cancer or something. But he refused to be hospitalized because he said, I'm already 80, 80 years old, I'm, I'm ready to die. So what could Dr. Tan Layong do? And I quote, he said, we gave the medication with as much tender care as we could, that we could muster in that crowded area. In other words, Dr. Tan was trying to exude all the goodness that he can squeeze out of his pores because there's nothing much he can do. He really ought to be in a hospital. But uh, you just give him some, some medicine, maybe even just Panadol. And, and it was a resolve that came from the goodness of God in his heart. And he wanted to do some good 
for, for this man, and that's about all that he could do. But Dr. Tan also said that with hindsight, he, he, he now thinks that he could have done some more good. He could have done some more, and that is to bring this 80-year-old man to visit his wife in that institution, even though the wife does not recognize him anymore uh, because of, of dementia. And, and that's the idea of active goodness. Um, and one, one of the best displays of, of goodness is, is grace. You know, it's, it's undeserved goodness. It's undeserved. It's kind of like, like you are able to, to give goodness or exhibit goodness in the midst of your own suffering or even in the midst of somebody can cause me to suffer but I do good for him. That kind of goodness is, is, is what we ought to be praying for if we are to live as Second Thessalonians chapter 1 uh, teaches us. So that's goodness. Secondly, it's act prompted by faith to be worthy of his calling that he may fulfill whoops, that he may fulfill every act prompted by faith or in other versions of the Bible work of faith. Work of faith. The Greek word for faith is pistis. And the same word is used in Galatians chapter 5, 22-23 as one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. The word pistis is translated in the Bible almost interchangeably as faith or faithfulness. And so I see it in this context, 2 Thessalonians, in the midst of persecution from without and afflictions from within, you display faith by being faithful under all circumstances. And so this word faith is more than intellectual agreement uh, or, or, or belief. It is action. That's why it says every act prompted by faith. It is a work of faith, of faith that works, of faith that has works is active. A work of faith in which human power is inadequate. It is God-enabled. And so you need God's power to fulfill every act prompted by faith, to fulfill every work of faith by His power in another translation. Some of you may know that I'm into dogs recently. And it really amused me to read this um, as uh, I was just kind of researching in, into the word work of faith. And one PRC uh, author wrote this, I quote you. A Christian from China wrote this. From my youth, I hated dogs and sometimes mistreated them. After I was saved, the faith within me no longer allowed me to behave in that way. Such a change in behavior is an action that comes out of faith. So all you dog kickers out there, get saved. <laughs> <laughs> and, you never, and you will never kick a dog again. It is a work of faith. And so how do we pray? You know, prayer doesn't have to be long or flowery. It's just like a song. Let this be our prayer. And if we want to take action from today's sermon, it is a prayer for goodness, a prayer for faithfulness, to have the works of faith. I just finished uh, reading this book. Actually, I listened to this book. Uh, like I borrowed it from the National Library uh, online, click it into my phone. And this book is called Unbroken, written by Laura Hillenbrand. She took seven years to research this before she wrote the book. 
And, uh, and then uh, Angelina Jolie took this story and made it into a movie that, was, that just came out last year. And um, you all know who Angelina Jolie is, right? Yeah, I know her. She doesn't know me. Okay. Anyway, um, yeah, nominated for three Oscars, didn't win, but still an excellent movie. It's about the, life, the true life story of a guy called Louis Zamperini. Okay, very Italian name because the parents came from Italy. Uh, Louis was born in 1917 and he died last year. 97 years old he died. He was a bombardier in World War II. He was really a juvenile delinquent. Okay? The police were always chasing him for stealing something. And then he became a bombardier in World War II. His B-24 crashed in the Pacific Ocean. There were 12, 12 crewmen, three survived, and then in the raft, one died. So only two out of 12 uh, survived. And they were 47 days in the raft. Okay? I think in those days, it was a record. Nobody survived to, to tell of uh, uh, surviving after 47 days. They were eating albatross, a bird that they had to spit out because it was so bad. They ate fish that they managed somehow to catch by hand because we were, there were no fishing hooks in the, the survival equipment in those days. They caught a shark by hand and they ate the liver of the shark. Survived 47 days. Only to run onto an island to become a prisoner of war in Japan and there for more than two years. And, and this was him in the Japanese uh, camp. I think he lost half his body weight. But what was worse was torments and torture from this guy, Mutsuhiro Watanabe, otherwise known as the bird. Okay, they, say, they ask him, why do you use the name bird? Why don't you call him a more horrible? And he said, oh, some Japanese understand English, so they had to find a neutral name. And this bird was always what the prison. And, and this guy, Watanabe, had a special liking for Louis. And it chose him out of the many uh, POWs and tortured him. Uh, Watanabe became a war, war criminal and uh, if you Google his name, you will find a three-minute video. He was unrepentant to the end. Unrepentant and still proud of what he did. Uh, even the Japanese called him a psychopath. And, um, and of course, the, the Allied forces called him the most sadistic man alive. One time, he ordered Zamperini to be punched on the face twice by 110 POWs. So this guy got 220 punches to the face. Uh, but somehow he managed to survive. And you know, when I watched the movie only yesterday, two hour plus, um, oh, there was a murderous thought in my heart. I was like, how can this be? You know, if I find this guy, I will murder him myself. Uh, but, you know, you, you thank God. You thank God for 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, which says that God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. And, and I said, wow, just leave it there. Just <laughs> leave it there. Otherwise, cannot sleep, you know. Um, well, if you watch the movie, um, and I had it with me, I borrowed from National Library again, okay, it's free. But the moment I sat down, Emmanuel from Ghana came and said, oh, I want to borrow. Uh, so he took the book and he took the DVD. So our Ghanaian friends, go look for Emmanuel. Okay? <laughs> when he watched the movie, you can watch it together with him. Um, but you must watch also 
the bonus track, which is 30 minutes, and that is uh, the real, real face and all that, not a dramatization, and that's well worth watching. So go and borrow from National Library. I think there are another one or two more copies of the DVD out there. But there's another 26 minute clip that is produced by the Billy Graham e Evangelical uh, Association uh, called Captured by Grace. Uh, the, the, the cover looks something like this. It's online. Go search for it. And I managed to edit a six-minute, six-and-a-half-minute video uh, of it, which uh, I'd like to show you now. Nightmares were every night. I couldn't get rid of it. I began to drink. And, I, and I, when I'm drinking and getting drunk, I'm, I completely forget about my ordeals. And so that's, what, um, that's kind of a temporary comfort. It was a temporary comfort Louis began to crave. As his addiction grew, the awful irony became clear. Alcohol was now his tormenting enemy. It got gradually worse. And finally, uh, out every night drinking, and my wife got fed up with it, and she knew our marriage was ruined, and she had a little girl to take care of. And she said, that's it, I've had it. And so she decided to file for divorce. Cynthia was heartbroken, but seemed to have no other options until she accepted an invitation from a concerned neighbor. Young guy came over and said, oh, by the way, um, there's a young evangelist coming out to have a, a series of meetings, and uh, I'm inviting you to go with me. That young evangelist was Billy Graham, not yet nationally known. This would be his first major outreach in Los Angeles. She came home speaking of this new peace and joy in her heart that she had received when she received Christ as her Savior. And she tried to witness to me, and I wanted no part of it, but she said, see, she, was, she had already had papers for divorce. Because of my conversion, I'm not going to get a divorce. Well, that was good news to me. I love my wife. She was beautiful, brilliant, and devoted. And... Uh, so that softened me up. Louis reluctantly went with his wife, only to storm out of the tent that first night. I said, now don't ever try to get me back to a place like this again. But she knew this was our only hope. And I said, okay, I'll go by one condition. When that fellow says every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm out of there. And she got me back the next day again. Thank God for that. And then it was the second night that I heard, I heard the gospel, and I said, hey, I don't, need, I don't need you to tell me I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. And then he said a couple of unique things that really stabbed me in the heart. I do not believe that any man can solve the problems of life without Jesus Christ. There are tremendous marital problems. There are physical problems. There are financial problems. There are problems of sin and habit that cannot be solved outside the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Of all of my near-death experiences, my life never passed before my eyes, never. But when Billy Graham quoted scripture, my life did pass before my eyes. And then when he mentioned people in serious trouble almost always turn to God in prayer. Was I in serious trouble? Yeah. Did I have serious problems? Yes. 
in the crash, life raft, and so forth. What do you do on the raft? You pray. What do you do in prison camp? You pray. That's all you do. You pray morning, noon, and night for 47 days, 43 days in the dungeon. Get me home alive, God, and I'll seek you. I'll serve you. And I, I'd never remembered that until Billy Graham started quoting the scriptures. Do you know Christ? Are you sure of it? Are you certain of it? All you have to do is let Jesus come to your home. I started to leave the tent meeting and uh, I felt awful guilty about my life because at that time my life passed before my eyes and I saw an ugly life. Yes, I had a lot of great times, a lot of uh, great experience, a lot of escapes from death, but I still didn't like my life after the war. It was terrible. And I thought, God, what a heel. I, I, I came home alive. And there, uh, God kept his promise. I didn't keep mine. And uh, so I went forward and accepted Christ. I knew I was through getting drunk. I knew I was through smoking. And I knew I had forgiven all of my guard, including the bird. Never, bought, never dawned on me again that I hated the guy. That was the first night in all those years I never had a nightmare. And I haven't had one since. The next morning I got up and grabbed my Army New Testament. Now in the service we couldn't understand the Bible. So we just discarded the Bible. But now I found my New Testament, which was sent home in my foot locker when I was declared dead, sat under a tree and began to read. You talk about a miracle. The first time in my life I understood what the Bible was saying. Not all of it, but I understood the plan of salvation, Christ on the cross, and tears began to roll down my face. Conversion is a miracle. Understand the scripture is a miracle because that's proof that the Spirit of God did come into your heart. The change in Louis's heart was so radical that he began contemplating something extraordinary. He knew God was calling him to return to Japan. Not long after he accepted Christ, Louis was back in the land where his nightmares began. This time, he entered a different prison, one that housed Japanese war criminals. Well, I spoke to the 850 total, and then I gave an invitation, and I said that uh, we just I'm presenting the gospel to you that Christ died on the cross for your sins, that he was buried for three days, rose again, alive. Over 50% had raised their hands. Then I saw my guards. I identified them as they walked down the aisle. Though the bird would never meet Louis, many of his former captors came forward. Well, this was quite a thrill to me to see, see these men after all these years and I know for sure now, even face to face, that the forgiveness was total. You know, I, I have a medical problem. My tear ducts don't work very well. Uh, so I have to say that when I listen to the book and when I watch this, I have to take many deep breaths, you know, many deep breaths to, um, to not cry. Um, it's, it's really quite a story. And, and the word that came to me is, is work of faith. Work of faith. And that for 47 days, you pray morning, night, and noon to, to be saved, uh, to survive, and, and you did. What is that? It's, it's a work of faith. And then for more than two years in the POW camp and, and suffering, and you pray morning, noon, and night, 
night and day to, to survive. And that is a work of faith. And when you come home and you're suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, at that time they didn't even know what that was, and all his nightmares that came every night, and for, for it to disappear immediately, I think that's a work of faith. For someone to approach his wife, his wife is called Cynthia Apple, Apple White. She was supposed to be a great beauty. I think you can see a bit of that. And for her to be Miss A, Miss Apple White, to be Mrs. Zamperini, they say she went from A to Z. <laughs> so any of you surname Ang, if you marry a guy, Zhou, you go from A to Z. Anyway, yeah, for, for this neighbor to invite a lady who is about to get a divorce, that's an act of faith, a work of faith. For her to invite this husband, a good-for-nothing fellow who doesn't provide for the family, was just drinking all the time to go to a Billy Graham crusade, which at that time nobody knew who he was. You could see how well-dressed he was. He's like one of these modern-day tele-evangelists, right? And, and the kind of almost arrogance in the way, he's, in the way he speaks like that. He's an unknown guy to invite him uh, first time, and first time he got so mad, he, he went out. For her to invite a second time, I think that's a, that's a, that's a work of, of faith. Uh, for him to go again, he prayed to receive Christ, and then for some people, they, they continue to suffer alcoholism and, and nightmares, but for him, it was instant. From day, that day onwards, no more alcohol, no more sp- smoking, no more nightmares. And then a bigger work of faith is for him to want to go back to Japan to confront his tormentors and to forgive. And that's another work of faith. He wanted to meet the bird, but the bird refused to meet him. And, and did I tell you, right, you can go and Google Musohiro Watanabe. His, his name is firmly fixed in my mind now. You, know? uh, you can see a, a two-minute-plus clip of him being interviewed, unrepentant to the end. And what did Zamperini do when the bird refused to meet him? He wrote a letter of forgiveness. And uh, can we show the next clip? It's only about a minute. Okay, this is a letter I wrote to Mr. Shiro Watanabe. As a result of my prisoner of war experience under your unwarranted and unreasonable punishment, my post-war life became a nightmare. I was not so much due to the pain and suffering as it was to the tension of stress and humiliation that caused me to hate with a vengeance. Under your discipline, my rights not only as a prisoner, but also as a human being were stripped from me. It was a struggle to maintain enough dignity and hope to live until the war's end. The post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble, but thanks to a confrontation with God through the evangelist Billy Graham, I committed my life to Christ. Love replaced the hate I had for you Christ said, forgive your enemies and pray for them. As you probably know, I returned to Japan in 1952, was graciously allowed to address all the Japanese war criminals at Tsugamo Prison. I asked them about you and was told that you probably had committed harikiri, which I was sad to hear. At that moment, like the others, I also forgave you and now would hope that you would also become a Christian. That is a work of faith. So, end times. Four blood moons, harbinger, shemitah. It is 
important to be watching. I think I would not discourage reading those books because it is it's quite amazing um, to find all those dates and, and things being, is it coincidence, is it not? Uh, Bible says to watch for signs of the end times and uh, yeah, read it if, if you like. But a key conclusion must be that whenever Christ may return, if, if He returns tomorrow, if you are sure that He returns tomorrow or that He will return in the next Shemitah, 17 years from now, that our lives tomorrow and all the way to the next 17 years cannot be very different. It's got to have that, that consistency. Whether Christ returns tomorrow or 17 years from now, that it has got to have that consistency. And what is that consistency? The fruit of the Spirit. Yes, watch the signs by all means, but the Bible doesn't say just watch. It says watch and pray. And so let this be our prayer. That when we now read Second Thessalonians chapter 1, what is that prayer for? It is prayer for goodness. It is prayer for faithfulness. Right? And it is in the midst of persecution, diokmos, or affliction, philipsis. So in the midst of, okay, I, I dare say maybe none of us here currently uh, would be suffering from persecution from without, but maybe affliction, right? You might have been diagnosed with some dreaded disease or, or there's something that terrible that has happened to you that has hurt you so much. Some affliction, but in the midst of that would come out goodness and faith and faithfulness. It's kind of like, like um, some people say it's like, it's a, like a barrel, you know, or, or a person that you get whack, 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 whack. And then what comes out, is it like gunk or, or, or horrible, smelly, bitterness, things, but when you whack, whack, and when the thing breaks, what comes out is honey. It's sweet, it's good. And, and so that's what we are, we are looking at as a, as a Christian. As a Christian filled with the goodness of God that although we gonna hunt them 220 times, but what comes out is forgiveness, is goodness. Let me invite the worship team to help us with the song. The, the potter's hand that we sang earlier. And, and for us now to be, to be thinking about that. We don't, we don't fear the end times, if it is tomorrow, if it is 17 years from now. We don't fear that. We are watching with keen interest, but day after day, we are living our lives the same, consistent with the fruit of the Spirit. And particularly for today, we look at goodness and we look at faithfulness and sure-footedness. Come, let's stand.
Count you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. And we pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'd like to invite you to come to the altar so that we can pray more specifically. More specifically, about what goodness means to you, and what work of faith you might want to offer to God in the week or in the month or the year to come. That we want to present this before the Lord as an expression of how worthy He is of the calling. We have as his children, 
that it'll be no longer about unforgiveness or bitterness not even the circumstances in our life that might seem unfair for now or some illness some ill treatment in the midst of all these circumstances we are true to our calling calling to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit by the power that is at work within us and we need to appropriate that by faith and would you let that be your prayer God help me to be good help me to be faithful leave the altar open let me end with a closing prayer and whether you want to pray with someone which is encouraged or you just want to sit down later and, and have a moment of quiet in your own heart before the Lord that is also encouraged Lord thank you Lord for, for your word to us for your inspiration your son on the cross your children in World War II lives that we see before our eyes that exhibit the fruit of the Spirit God let me too be an inspiration let the goodness of God find a resolve in my heart let my work everything that I do be a work of faith that pleases God help us therefore Lord I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.